Thank you, Jackie. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name's Stephen, and I'm the youth pastor here at Oasis. Uh, it's my joy to open up God's Word uh, with us all this morning. Uh, so I'd love to invite you to keep your Bible open or your Bible app if you have it there. Uh, the Bible reading we've just had focuses on the middle section of this chapter, uh, but throughout the sermon this morning, we're going to be looking a little bit before it uh, and a little bit after it as well. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time or maybe you've been away for a little bit, this morning we are finishing our series in the book of 1 Kings, uh, a, a series that we've entitled The Life and Times of Elijah. If I was to ask, what stories come to mind when you think of stories that have a happy ending? What do you think of? You know, perhaps a Disney classic like Cinderella, maybe Beauty and the Beast, Anne of Green Gables, or maybe even The Lord of the Rings. You know, despite the exuberant highs and the really challenging lows that each of the main characters in these stories face, they all seem to end well and joyously even. But unfortunately, this is not the way that 1 Kings ends. As we'll see, the book of 1 Kings ends with more stupidity, more foolishness, and even more disappointment. A fun fact, uh, the writer of 1 Kings is so disappointed that he barely mentions Ahab by name, merely referring to him as the king of Israel. Our headings for this morning are a bit of a countdown, which I think is appropriate, as the, this chapter leaves us waiting in anticipation for something more. It leaves us wanting someone better. We're going to look at three warring countries, two foolish kings, and one good shepherd and king. Throughout this series, I don't know if you've noticed, but there have been three countries named repeatedly who have been at war with each other. Uh, there'll be a map up on the screen pointing them out. We have Aram, uh, which is also known as Syria, uh, and that is ruled by King Ben-Hadad. We have the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, which is ruled in this chapter by King Ahab. And then we have the southern kingdom, Judah, which is currently ruled by King Jehoshaphat. In 1 Kings 15, we saw that Judah was at war with Israel. At that time, Israel had a treaty or an alliance with Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, uh, but King Asa, Jehoshaphat's father, sought to break that treaty and establish a new one between Judah and Aram. Ben-Hadad agrees, and so the tables are turned. He cuts off his treaty with uh, Ahab and uh, joins one with King Asa to fight against Israel, which is sandwiched between those two nations. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 20... Ben-Hadad attacks Israel on several occasions, but each time, God gives Ahab the victory. Long story short, Ahab shows mercy to Ben-Hadad and agrees to a new treaty, which includes letting Ben-Hadad live, plus the return of cities uh, captured by Ben-Hadad and the Arameans. But in the wake of that, 
Ahab is confronted by one of God's prophets and is condemned by God, who had given him the victory in order to kill Ben-Hadad. As a result of letting him live, Ahab is condemned to die in Ben-Hadad's place. And in this final chapter of 1 Kings, we see that Ahab has a treaty now with Jehoshaphat. The northern and the southern kingdoms are at peace with each other. But Ahab is frustrated because Ben-Hadad hasn't followed the conditions of the treaty that made in chapter 20. Ramoth-Gilead, a city in Israel that had been captured by Ben-Hadad, hadn't been returned. And so at the beginning of chapter 22, Ahab invites Jehoshaphat to go to war with him against Ben-Hadad to reclaim Ramoth-Gilead. And so this sets the scene for today's passage, and it brings us to our second heading, Two Foolish Kings. Ahab and Jehoshaphat are like black and white, according to how the Bible describes them. It's said of Jehoshaphat that in everything he followed the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In comparison, if you remember last week's passage, it was said of Ahab that there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. Well, in chapter 22, when Ahab asks Jehoshaphat to go to war together, Well, Jehoshaphat asks Ahab to seek the counsel of God. So what does he do? Ahab gathers 400 prophets and he asks them, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Their response is, go for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. If you were in Ahab's shoes, what would you do? If you received such overwhelming support for this big decision that you had to make. Well, Ahab was ready to form up the troops and march on Ramoth-Gilead. But Jehoshaphat wasn't convinced that the prophets were truly speaking on God's behalf. You see, when Jehoshaphat had asked Ahab to seek counsel from God, he had used the name Yahweh which God had made known to the Israelites back when he called Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Yahweh was meant the God of Israel. It's the name that was passed down from generation to generation, and it's the name that Jehoshaphat uses here. Now, depending on the translation you might be using, you might notice that the word Lord is written in all caps. When it's written like that, it refers to this name Yahweh, the God of Israel. However, when the prophets that Ahab consulted replied, they didn't use the word Yahweh. They used a word that could refer to any Lord. And in your Bible, again, depending on the translation, perhaps it just has a capital L. The prophets of Ahab, these 400 who were gathered there, were quite vague with their message. John Woodhouse, a commentator, points out that when Ahab's prophets said, go, the Lord will give it into the king's hand, 
Not only did they avoid saying which Lord would deliver victory, but they carefully refrained from saying what will be delivered, or indeed to which king it will be delivered. A careful listener would realize that the words of the prophets could be made to fit any course of events. They could be taken to mean that Ahab would be given into the hands of Ben-Hadad. Now, discerning this, Jehoshaphat asks specifically, again, for a prophet of Yahweh to speak on behalf of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Ahab responds in verse 8, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of Yahweh. I'm going to start using that name instead of Lord where appropriate. But Ahab continues, But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Church, we need to beware the foolishness of Ahab. God had provided prophets to speak his words to Ahab. Throughout this sermon series, we've mostly been following Elijah the prophet. And then here we meet another prophet, Micaiah. And yet instead of going to these prophets as his first point of call in discerning what decision to make when it came to big decisions... Ahab keeps them away and instead has surrounded himself by those who will only tell him what he wants to hear. Let me ask you this morning, who do you go to for advice and for wisdom in navigating big decisions and challenges in life? For sure, it's important that we have people who are in our corner who support and encourage us. But do we only listen to people who say positive things? Do we have people in our corner who can call us out and who can point out the hard truths that we need to hear, even if we might not want to hear them? Or have we cut those people out of our lives just as King Ahab has done? Reluctantly, Ahab sends for Micaiah. On his way to meet with the kings, Micaiah gets a briefing on what he should say. He gets told, look, everyone else is saying good things. They're saying what the king wants to hear. Don't mess it up. To which Micaiah responds, as surely as Yahweh lives, I can tell him only what Yahweh, the God of Israel, tells me. Go, Micaiah. You know, as tempting as it might be to do otherwise, we likewise need to live in light of what God says. His word must be our ultimate guide and authority. Well, Micaiah goes before the kings and Ahab asks whether they should go to war against Ramoth Gilead. And what does Micaiah say? Well, he responds with exactly what the other prophets have already been saying. He says, attack and be victorious, for Yahweh will give it into the king's hand. Now this response is probably laced with sarcasm, because instead of just going along with it, 
Ahab calls him out, and we see that in verse 16. He says, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Well, in response, Micaiah does tell the truth, and he paints a fairly bleak picture. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Yahweh said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. It's not hard. I mean, it's in there. It's not hard to imagine Ahab turning to Jehoshaphat and saying, see, I told you so. He never prophesies anything good about me. And then in the next few verses, which were read out earlier, Micaiah describes the spiritual events that have led up to this competing of words between him and the prophets that Ahab had gathered. And he lays it out clearly that the prophets are lying to Ahab so that by God's will, he might go to Ramoth-Gilead to die. The end of today's reading finishes with uncertainty around, well, whose word is true and what will the kings do? Micaiah leaves us with these words directed to Ahab and then to all in attendance. He says, if you ever return safely, Yahweh has not spoken through me. Mark my words, all you people. Now, if you were in their shoes, what would you have done? You'd think Micaiah's words would have made the king sit up and listen, right? Micaiah has clearly told them that the 400 prophets are lying to them. And the only reason that Micaiah is there is because Jehoshaphat had convinced Ahab to send for him so that he could hear what Yahweh had to say. Well, now that he's heard from Yahweh, what next? You'd go home, right? Obviously, things are not going to end well if you continue down this warpath. Going home would be a wise decision. But that's not the decision that Jehoshaphat makes. He decides to stick around and support Ahab, ignoring the word of God spoken at his request. It doesn't even tell us that he you know, cautioned Ahab or, or tried to persuade him to do differently. Well, as for Ahab, this isn't the first time he's heard God's judgment on his life. When Micaiah said that the people would be shepherdless, that was a clear indication that Ahab would die. The last time he'd heard judgment was in chapter 21, and he responded with humility, and we saw that God showed mercy. Surely he can't have forgotten that so soon. Surely if he repents, God will see that and will relent. Surely repentance would be the wise approach. I really don't know what's worse. The fact that Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of Yahweh and then ignored him, or that Ahab continued to harden his heart against God's word despite knowing the consequences. 
And look, we might be sitting there in shock at this absolute disregard for God's word. But the reality is it's not so hard for us to do the same thing. How often do we seek out sound teaching only to continue living our lives as though it has no effect? Now, I've spoken to many people, uh, and I've said these very things myself. Uh, We've said that, you know, we like to choose a church based on the quality of the preaching, which is not a bad thing to desire. But does listening to good preaching actually lead to change in our lives? Do we seek out good teaching so that it might actually transform us? Or do we seek it out and then check it off as though it's just a task on our to-do list and then go on living our lives as though nothing's changed? How often are we convicted by the Holy Spirit as we read the Word of God and then choose to ignore the conviction, maybe because it makes us uncomfortable and we don't want to dwell there, or maybe because it means that we need to change how we're living and that's just a bit too difficult. And so we then foolishly continue embracing self or sin. It's easy for us to sit here and just shake our heads at Jehoshaphat and Ahab. But let's not forget our tendency to do the very same thing in ignoring the truth and the sometimes harsh reality of God's Word. Well, whether we call what Ahab does next as foolishness or the providence of God, we see that he goes to war against Ben-Hadad at Ramoth-Gilead. And Jehoshaphat is right there alongside him. Perhaps in an attempt to outsmart God, to thwart God's plan, Ahab dresses up as a regular soldier rather than as the king of Israel. Meanwhile, he tells Jehoshaphat to wear his royal robes. As the battle unfolds, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, commands his troops to only fight with Ahab. Well, they see Jehoshaphat dressed up in all his finery, so they start fighting in that direction. But then Jehoshaphat cries out, and they realize, well, he's not Ahab, and so they stop trying to reach him. What happens next? The critical moment comes in verse 34, which says this, but someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot, and that evening he died. As the sun was setting... A cry spread through the army. Every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. 
And so it comes to an end. The wicked reign of King Ahab, the one who had sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, the one who behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, is wounded by a random arrow, then he bleeds out and dies. All of these things happen to fulfill God's word, the word of Yahweh which he had spoken through his prophets. You might think that actually it's not that bad an ending, but we haven't gotten there yet. After Ahab dies, he is succeeded by his son Ahaziah, who continues to lead the Israelites into worshipping idols and arousing God's anger, just like his father had. Towards the end of the chapter, we also see that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, dies and is succeeded by his son Jehoram. Unfortunately for Judah, Jehoram marries one of Ahab's daughters and is influenced to follow after the kings of Israel, leading the people of Judah into worshipping idols rather than worshipping the one true God. It's a pretty bleak and kind of depressing end to this book. Both nations, Israel and Judah, end up with kings leading them away from the one true God. It's like they're fighting this battle where they're completely outnumbered with no sign of victory, let alone any rest. It's so bleak. Reminds me a bit of this scene you'll see on the screen. Uh, Does anyone know where that is from? See some smiles. Uh, It's Helm's Deep uh, from the Lord of the Rings. The people of Rohan have fled their homes seeking uh, safety from the army of Saruman, uh, and they've sought refuge in this valley in this fortress called the Hornsburg. For several days, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, alongside King Theoden, and other survivors from Rohan are fighting against Saruman's army. The enemy is right at the gates. They are completely outnumbered with nowhere else to run. And so it seems that all hope is lost. The only thing left to do is to mount one final glorious charge which is sure to end in death. It's as bleak and depressing as it comes. But just as they're readying to sally forth with their final charge, the first light of dawn shines through one of the windows, and the words of Gandalf the wizard come back to them. They remember him saying, look to my coming at the first light on the fifth day. Well, it is now first light on the fifth day, and yet there is no sign of Gandalf. And so they charge, just as the gates are breached by the enemy. As they're riding out over the moat bridge, knocking enemies off left and right, Aragorn looks to the horizon, and there at the crest of the hill, he sees a rider on a white horse. Behold, Gandalf has arrived. 
and with him an army of horsemen. Gandalf's horse whinnies and draws the attention of the orcs. There's a slight pause in the fighting. And then this army of horsemen charge down the hill uh, and obliterate the army. Hope has come. What moments before looked like a lost cause turns into a resounding victory. And so it is with the story of one kings. At the end of chapter 22, the outlook is bleak and depressing. But we know that is not the end of the story. It might look bleak as though in the dark of night, but the dawn is still to come. The kings of Israel and the kings of Judah were weak and imperfect. They often failed to rule with wisdom and justice. They often failed to shepherd God's people with kindness and humility. They often failed to listen to God's word. They often failed to lead God's people to worship Him. As such, they left God's people longing for something more. They left God's people longing for one who would come and who would rule with all wisdom, justice, kindness, and humility. And God had promised that He would send someone. But will he come before it is too late? The good news is, yes, he does. Jesus is the one good shepherd, the one true king, whom God's people in the Old Testament were waiting for. He is the one who would rule with wisdom, kindness, humility, and justice. In Ahab's death, The people of Israel found temporary peace because the war was over. But even more so, in the death of Jesus, God's only son, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, in him, they and we can find peace with God. We no longer need to be at war with God. We no longer need to be his enemies but we can be at peace with him because of Jesus. This is good news. This is news worthy of being shouted out in the streets. It's news worthy of being shouted out from the mountaintops. Peace has come. Though Ahab's death caused temporary peace, it also caused the people of Israel to scatter But it is because of Jesus' death and his resurrection that we have peace and are brought together back into the fold. This too is good news and there's even better news. Jesus is not just the risen and the ruling king, but he is also the returning king. He is coming back one day. And so are you looking for hope for your future? Are you looking for something better? The prophet Isaiah wrote, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And last line refers to Jesus. The Lord has laid on Jesus our sin and the punishment for our sins. And this is the very reason why we can turn to Him. He is the good shepherd. He is the one true king. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. And one day, if your trust is in him, he is returning to take you to be with him forever. This is the ultimate happy ending. Better than Cinderella, better than the Lord of the Rings. This is the ending that our hearts long for. And it is the one that we, as believers, can look forward to. What a glorious day that will be. Come, King Jesus, come. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our good shepherd. We lack nothing. You make us to lie down in green pastures and you lead us beside quiet waters. You are the one who refreshes our souls. You guide us along the right paths for your name's sake. If there are those here now who do not yet know your voice, we ask that you open their ears to hear and to know you. And we thank you for laying down your life for our sake so that we might know your love for us and so that we might have peace with God. Even though we might walk through the darkest valley, we will fear no evil for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. Our cups overflow. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in your house forever. Amen.